Hello and welcome to our Kaleidoscope Live. We are the Kaleidoscope team from the British Journal of Psychiatry. And as you know, if you've been here before, we're going to talk through some research that we have from the column. We've got a couple of interesting pieces this month, one on discrimination and the other on wearables and trying to help monitor when people are becoming less well. The first paper we're going to look at is the one on discrimination. It's by Hans Gardner and it's in Nature. The title is Monitoring Hiring Discrimination Via Online Recruitment Platforms. And of course, it's really, really topical. It wasn't clearly planned in this way, but we're doing the podcast in the context of lots of debate online about discrimination, people in power and politics and, and so forth. And the other thing that we've been talking about before we came online. We're doing a paper on discrimination and things that hit people, particularly according to gender and ethnicity. And it's kind of a, a thought at the beginning that the lived experience of our group of uh, panelists and the limitations of any group of people. So three of the four of us are white, three of the four of us are men, all four of us are professionals. And so there's lots of privilege within the group that we come from, I suppose. I regard myself as an ethnic minority because I'm Irish, but again, I'm white, male and professional. So I think it's just keeping that in mind as we talk through what's a really difficult topic. And it's it's hardly news that there is discrimination out there. Again, it's it's been a bit of a depressing day for me if you look at lots of social media and newspapers and how people are being quite polarised or how people are not being believed when they report their own experiences. But it's a long established thing that there is discrimination in terms of ethnicity and in terms of gender when you look at employment rates. And there has been research that's looked at this before. I'll tell you why the Hent Garden paper is quite interesting in a moment, but lots of the data has been what's called observational. So you just you do a survey, you look at a professional group, maybe take psychiatrists like I am, and you look at the percentage of men and women, or you look at the percentage of people from different backgrounds, the percentage maybe that are white or black or Asian, or whichever way you want to break it down. And you can establish what's called a minority coefficient. So that says, well, from this group of people, we have fewer than we expect. So lots of work has been done that way, but that type of work doesn't tell you why. There could be lots of other reasons why people are choosing different employments and so forth. A second type of work that's common in this way is what's called correspondence tests. And you, you've probably heard about this type of work. This is the classic paradigm where people post in CVs. So researchers invent CVs, they send them to companies, and then they change a variable. So you send in two identical CVs, but you make a man and one a woman. Or you inferentially, through the name, infer a different ethnicity for the person you're sending it in. That work also shows a problem. It shows, uh, in terms of gender and ethnicity, people not getting jobs and a gap and a bias. That work is problematic for other reasons. It's ethically challenged. Is it okay to do that and send in false CVs? You're giving people extra work to do, I suppose. So what the Hand Gardener paper does is it tries to do something else and it tries, it's got big data, as, as they say, and it's looking at lots more than the standard test that might send in 50 CVs. So they try to track discrimination in Switzerland. Now, I don't think that the findings will come on to, I don't think this is a uniquely Swiss issue, but they looked at where people posted their CVs and recruiters looked at them online. That's a really common way for people to apply for jobs these days. And what they wanted to do was track the search behavior 
of the recruiters? How long are recruiters spending looking at different CVs? And can they establish from that and looking at the criteria on people's CVs, what's happening? And I've got some of the figures here in front of me. They had nearly half a million searches, 3.4 million profile views. This is in 2017 when they looked at it. 17.4 million job seeker profiles and 323 jobs. Their, their findings are kind of interesting. I mean, one was the average recruiter spends 10.5 seconds on your CV, which was fascinating to me. It's not a lot of time. And then they try to adjust for things like demographic and experience factors and see what factors were impacting what uh, the, the recruiters spent their time looking at. Interestingly, there wasn't that much difference in time spent when you look at headline figures such as name and ethnicity. There was some difference, but they're spending roughly the same amount of time on each CV. So they're not immediately disregarding them because of your gender or your ethnic group. But there is what they call a contact penalty. So this is how likely is the recruiter to contact you after reading your CV. And there was a difference by gender and a difference by ethnicity. So by ethnicity, people who were non-Swiss, so this is a Swiss study, were between 4 and 19% less likely to be contacted. That's a contact penalty. If you're not Swiss, you're less likely to be contacted. But there's really interesting variation, as I imagine you probably suspect underneath that. So it differs. There was a 4.2% penalty if you're Western or Northern European. 6.2% if you're North or South American. So this is less likely to be contacted than if you're Swiss. 12.6% if you're from the Balkans. 13.5% from the Middle East or North Africa. 17.1% Sub-Saharan African and 18.5% Asian. So there's a contact penalty and there is differentiation amongst different groups. One of the things that I find interesting, they noted how experience helps. So if you have four years experience, you are 12% more likely to be contacted. But they countered that and said, so four years experience doesn't compensate, for example, for being from the Middle East or North Africa. So a Swiss person with no experience was more likely to get contacted than someone from North Africa with four years experience. So this stuff's really harsh. There was a gender um, discrimination too. Interestingly, the gender discrimination occurred for men and women. It depended on the perception of whether the field was a male field or a female field. So if the professional field was seen as male, women were 7% less likely to be contacted. And if it was considered to be a female, field, men were 12% less likely to be contacted. And, and so it's really depressing in a sense. Uh, the authors offer some, what they propose are novel issues that you might be able to overcome. If this is the way people are approaching hiring online these days, what they say is you can, at least with their method, you can monitor what's happening. So rather than the observational data or the CV data, you can relatively cost-effectively, relatively easily track what's happening and at least you know your figures. They offer some proposals in terms of what you might do to compensate. They offer that you might want to change how formal CV structures are put online to what they call downplay and gender and ethnicity, although even that feels horrible to say that, to downplay who you are. And they offer up things such as putting CVs side by side for direct comparison, which has been shown to help reduce discrimination and issues such as implicit bias training, although I feel less confident about that. So I was fairly depressed about it. And again, that's probably fitting in my mood reading some of the stuff in online in the media today. So what did you guys think of it?
I mean, I'll pop in. I thought Dan was going to come in and wow us with the big data, but you can come after me. Um, for me, I suppose it's more confirmatory than anything, right? We sort of already know these things happen. Um, it just gives us figures to sort of perseverate on. Um, I was a little disappointed at the superficial take in terms of only looking at um, gender, only looking at nationality, not looking at intersectionality at all. And of course, as you um, pointed out, we ourselves are intersectional and everyone is more complicated than this. And so if you've got such big data and you've got such fancy machine learning, I'd like to see you put it to task. Um, I'd like to see more nuanced data come out of that, but ultimately I'm not sure that it would change the conclusions. Um, for me, it was a bit disappointing um, and it felt like a bit of an afterthought to say that, oh, perhaps we could look at implicit bias training because if you've been following the news at all or social science for the last decade plus, um, it will be very clear that implicit bias training, while it is sort of a corporate darling because it allows for a very visible uh, action for corporations and institutions to take, um, it doesn't translate <laughs> into uh, a lack of discrimination or uh, an increase in sort of diversity in managerial levels. And so uh, while it does raise awareness, it does not translate into conscious action. And <sighs> So again, we're sitting here going, yep, this is really bad. And we don't have sort of a very clear way out of it. Now, I will say social science has tons of literature to tell us ways in which we could approach this to sort of bring diverse groups together. You pull people together on a task, which is uh, the success of which is interdependent. And so um, if you look at this kind of stuff in the way it's been employed in higher education institutions, not brilliant, um, but the stuff that seems to actually increase diversity in those managerial levels, because oftentimes you can get recruitment programs that kind of get people in, but if they can't thrive or succeed, it's not necessarily translating into what we're what we're really hoping for. And in these in these cases, all of these programs kind of have that element of bringing people together to solve common problems. And it's also about going across the strata, so bringing in senior leaders, bringing them down, so in mentoring programs or uh, particular recruitment programs um, that help bring people up, kind of exposes folks in the senior level who by definition are very likely to be kind of the, the default successful demographic, um, brings them into direct contact with folks to figure out how to creatively solve, solve these solutions. So I think Machine learning is good, and I'm sure Dan will tell me why it was outstanding in some way, shape, or form. Um, but frankly, it's it's uh, powerless <laughs> against human beings unless you're bringing social science into it. So that's my take. Yeah, uh, uh, my, my view on it was, um, I, I think I agree that, I mean, the, the results are fundamentally quite descriptive. Um, and, you know, I don't mind that so much. I quite like that they've just described the data, they've described their findings and they've said, there you go. I think that's important. And I think the, the, the appeal of this paper is that it's on massive amounts of data. Um, I, I only have bland things to contribute and say about it. <laughs> so that's my apology in advance, right? But the, the thing that's, that's novel about this, and I thought the reason it was exciting enough to include in the column was, um, First of all, unusually, they had access to sort of micro behaviors that are exhibited through the platform that was used by the recruiters. So unusually, yeah, not only did they know 
what the applicants looked like in terms of their CV content, but they also could access sort of micro information about the behavior of the recruiters that they could then use to make inferences. So they could access the time spent hovering on someone's CV before they then made a decision to, a very quantifiable decision to then click on the contact button. So the nice thing about, that's why I thought it was exciting was because that's unusual to have that level of being able to look inwards into the actual mechanism and how the process of um, bias in recruitment is operationalized through the platform that they were using. So that I thought was quite novel. And I, I don't want to be, I mean, here's, here's the fundamental trade-off here. If you've got algorithms that can access that micro behavior, that operationalized or the implementation, if you like, of bias, okay, that also provides you with an opportunity to intervene. So unusually, this could be an example where algorithmic fairness actually can be used to provide recourse because you've got biased human recruiters. So in many respects, you can imagine a system whereby, given that the findings of the paper were that actually people were, if you like, hovering on the CVs for roughly uniform lengths of time, but it's the action of contact. So it's not the stimulus, it's the response that's the problem here, right? So it, it's not necessarily that people are perusing the CVs differently. Um, it's what they then do with that information. It's the action that is consequent to the interpretation of the available data you could very easily be saying, you know, recruiter X has only selected or made contact with a certain number of people where we know from their exploratory behavior that the, the diversity in terms of gender for that particular role or ethnicity for another particular role appears to be skewed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to intervene here and I'm going to say that you should have recommended the following CVs for contact. Um, so it sounds a bit big brother, but on the flip side to that, if you're not going to use the facility that you have here with access to that sort of micro data, then it seems it seems like an opportunity that you could you could exploit for algorithmic fairness and recourse, rather than you know the the more usual cases here where we just say, well, look, you know, we're baking in prejudice into these algorithms. Actually, you could turn this coin over, I think, and actually use the same technologies to actually do something positive. But I concede that that's got a bit of a big brother feel to it. But anyway, that was my thoughts on it. Uh, I mean, I think that I actually agree with Dan a little more. I think that this kind of data and the ability to look at it in an automatic way where you can examine small bits of behavior offer you an opportunity to be able to, to put corrective algorithms in place. And I think I also just wanted to mention so the idea that your lived experience will kind of color what, what you uh, perceive now or how you might look at this paper or you have, might look at the panel is, I think, you know, is a very valid point. But I guess one of the things that emerges from as a follow through of that is that we've got no idea. You can look at the four of us and actually you've got no idea where you started from, what experiences you've had. You can certainly look to say that that's Dr. Tracy and he's got these awards which suggest that he must be, have gone to a, a public school, he must have gone to Oxbridge, he must have had uh, a training at a particular university and so on. But you're, you know, you could look at his CV to do that, but I think you make a lot of assumptions and in a way, I like the fact that you said you thought, you know, the four of us are all professionals. 
And that's quite interesting. But one of the striking things about bias and the studies that are being done is that professionals are not immune from this. So if you look at the data for, uh, you talked about observational studies and correspondence study. If you look at the observational studies uh, for doctors, for example, if, if you look at how many people uh, are offered a job, a first consultant job, Dan's got his first consultant job, that the proportion of people who are white will get, I think the, the, the offer rate was something around 30%, 29% white respondents in the Royal College of Physicians survey. Uh, and the compatible figure for black and minority ethnic was 12. So actually, in this case, being a professional is, is not a protective factor from being uh, a victim of bias. So I think picking whichever characteristics you pick will, will bring something different to the table. The second thing which I thought was quite interesting in this paper is, well, how, given the fact that this algorithm is telling you about how long people are spending and the level of bias, and it kind of varies from 4%, almost depending on your, on how different you are maybe from the Swiss population. It's an interesting variation. You didn't really, you, you gave the numbers, but it's not clear why people of Asian origin should be uh, 18 and a half percent penalized versus people from Northern Europe only being penalized by like 4%. And then this kind of intermediate ratio between South America, at, you know, whatever it was like 8% or something. And that, you know, what, what is that, what does that deviation? This is where I think the social science is really helpful in terms of trying to understand you've got the numbers, but the numbers can only tell you this is a difference. You need the social science to be able to understand what is driving that difference. And if you can understand that, you can then develop some algorithms a bit like uh, Dan was saying to try and correct the, the assumptions that people are making. So I think the data as in, as in all data is just information, but I think you have an option in how you decide to use this. And I think that really depends on how multidisciplinary you're willing to be and how, how, how you can use that, all of that information to particularly the intersectionality to try and decide how you can try and fix those problems and having this data at such a granular level gives you a very, very rare opportunity to be able to address that. And the other kind of, the final point that I wanted to make was that the level of bias that they found is actually pretty much equivalent to what was seen in the correspondence studies where you swap the CV identifiers in a way. So in a way, this isn't, it's kind of reflecting the kind of real life experience of exper more experimental work. So it's not a million miles away from where those figures are, are, are lying, really. So I think that was all I wanted to say about that. I think the other thing is, despite it not being where we want to be, you've got to start, you've got to start to measure it, then you've got to start to measure change to know where you want to, rather than just saying it's it's bad, it was always bad, it'll always, it'll always be bad in the future. I kind of remind of the local initiative within the sort of British Journal of Psychiatry where we, we did the column where there was a recognition taking gender specifically that there's a suspicion that following all lots of other journals, most scientific publishing, that women, their representation wasn't as high as it should be at, at a board level in terms of number of board members and then papers published. So the journal then evaluates. It did three years evaluation, looking at percentage first and last authors who are women and board members. And of course that takes one issue. So it takes the issue of gender. And there again, we talked about levels of intersectionality and the journal published it. 
And it's not where the journal wants to be. But what was at least pleasing in some senses was there was a, a commitment to continue publishing it and to continue saying it's a problem until it gets to where it should be. So I, I suppose you can go from the data sets down to the organizations and ask how are they going to, to change it. Okay, well, you mentioned Big Brother, Dan, and you've got a paper that nicely segues, for me at least, into how we monitor people to help keep people well and the challenges that that might bring us. Yeah, so um, this is a paper by Philip Henson and colleagues, which was in Translational Psychiatry, which is um, an attempt to use digital uh, technology or mHealth or whatever you'd like to describe it as, as a way of monitoring uh, people with severe and enduring mental illness. Um, it uses the kind of the, the, the self-management type model of, of you know, entering information into your smartphone to track your symptoms and how well you're doing. And what they did with that was they tried to use what's essentially quite a lot of data with relatively high te temporal granularity to see if they could spot periods or episodes where people were struggling more or coping less well with their symptoms. And they did this in a framework that um, it, there's a, it's, it's kind of a statistical framework called anomaly detection, where essentially you're looking for trends in data and you identify points which seem to deviate from that trend in some statistically meaningful way, and you flag them as anomalous. Once you flag them, of course, you have this opportunity for sort of, sort of just-in-time intervention. So if you know, for example, that someone's been doing okay for the last 14 days, and then on day 15, they have an anomalous event in their data, you can then pick up the phone and you could call them, or you can intervene. And the, the idea of just-in-time kind of care, I think, is actually a really useful way of thinking about what we have a habit of quite grandiosely calling precision medicine or precision psychiatry. What you're actually looking at here is just precision care. It's care that's timed and adapted to respond to someone's needs. So it's kind of an interesting paper in that respect. My, my excitement about it was that it describes a method for anomaly detection in uh, multivariate time series data, which is notoriously difficult to handle. So I kind of got, I went straight in for the, uh, ignored the woods altogether. I just went straight for the trees on this one. Like, you know, like a beaver trying to build a dam. I was just I wanted the pine. I wasn't interested in the forest. So I, I confess I got a little bit bogged down in that, but um, it's a really cool technique. I was really, really impressed and interested to see it. Um, the, the analysis they provide is, is fairly descriptive, which I think is also important because they didn't fall for the trap of trying to do elaborate inferential statistics on relatively small numbers with relatively complex experimental pilot data. So they just said, look, it did work. We found some way of analyzing anomalies. The anomalies appear to correlate meaningfully with clinical events that would flag a just-in-time, you know, precision care response. And I thought that was really nice. Um, I, you know, it, it comes from a long line of papers in the last five years that talk about the concept of digital phenotypes. And that's something that I've never gotten from this literature clearly is the difference between a, tra a trajectory versus a phenotype. And I think they, that, you know, those terms have been used interchangeably in the literature in, in a way that means we've got no systematic or mechanical way of understanding what smartphone data like this really means in terms of the nosology of, 
you know, mental illness or disorders. And I think those terms are fluffy and a little bit poorly defined. But having said that, cool technique, nice method. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I was kind of buoyed by it because it also solves some problems for me that I'm trying to crack at the moment. So I was kind of excited by it. Who's going to take that up? I'm happy to... I mean, following on again from Dan's positivity, I mean, it's just nice to see digital phenotyping or at least using this kind of data in a way for good rather than just targeting advertising or, you know, deciding which who you want to win the election or funding, you know, whatever, whichever particular country's election that you would like to influence to kind of use this kind of small bits of data and kind of use that for a particular purpose here you're using both a combination of kind of passive where uh, where people are filling in things like this experience uh, kind of momentary assessment you can ask people to give their daily experience and combine that with the kind of active censoring things around movement and activity being able to measure their their sleep their screen time even to the extent of the content of their uh, the text or at least the length of their text or the length of their conversation and it's becoming a really big uh, topic I think of interest uh, there's a kind of commercial end which is about how can we commercialize this and there's a kind of person benefit personalized medicine end which is about how can we use this to benefit patients in a kind of patient centered way. And there's been quite a few studies following, looking at similar things around looking at language, particularly in text or in spoken language, can that be used as a predictor using these kind of natural language processing algorithms to see when changes are occurring in that kind of anomaly detection way. And there are more kind of fancy papers which have been uh, published looking at using digital technology to look at concordance or, or drug adherence, for example, where you might take a pill with a sensor, which then the moment it hits your stomach then pings out and you can see when that happens and you have that information. And for me, the, the, the issue that that raises is really, again, something which is to do more about the, more about the data and the data ownership is who owns that data? How is it being shared? Do people actually understand what that means? And these are issues that I guess are just coming to the fore over the last year or two, which have largely been neglected. And I think it, it kind of behoves medicine and medical ethicists to really try and understand that and put a framework together before you move forward on using these as more kind of routine clinical tools, which is really the kind of holy grail where we'd like to be that people, all the information we have about a person is collected in one place and we can use that to make uh, better decisions in their interest and more shared decisions because they're bringing their own data to the table. I would love to follow up on that. So for me, when I read this paper, it reminded me of sort of using modern technology to, I don't know, really touch upon an old idea, right? The Richard Dawkins extended phenotype idea. But now we've got the kit in our pockets all the time that we can actually do something with it. Um, and I think you're right. For me, the most interesting bits, not that I don't love the data, I do, but it's the kind of human ethical side of it. So when I imagined this happening, um, 
it made me feel slightly paranoid, right? Like I have a couch to 5k app that is constantly in, like evergreen with its hope and invading me and reminding me to do something. I do not love that. And I wonder how other people would feel, especially if they were kind of unwell. Um, but, but actually I don't have to go sort of that far outside of my lane. This kind of thing has been looked at um, around uh, university students, because of course we know that we're having increasing issues with mental health and university students and we have a duty of care. Um, so people have been interested in this kind of thing for a while. And there's a question around efficacy versus acceptability. And the, the idea that this is actually really intimate, sense, sensitive data and who owns it, what are you going to do with it? Um, how do students feel about it or how do patients feel about it? And, and then I'm going to go one step further because I think we have to look systemically and we have to say, so what? We know that mental health services are totally strained and underfunded. If there isn't the care available when we need just in time stuff, why? Um, so I say it's full of potential. I think it's full of a bunch of questions that are going to be the kinds of things we grapple with for a long time now. Um, but fundamentally, fundamental health care, because otherwise none of this has any purpose. Yeah, I'm probably going to echo some of that. I mean, digital phenotyping, it's kind of, it is what it is, right? So it's, we said this before in the preamble, so I, I get targeted ads for hair restoration products and retirement planning. It just seems to be coming through. I got a, a little while ago, I got phoned by my credit card company. I'd purchased trainers from JD Sports, and they said that wasn't like you. You normally purchase high-end shoes. And uh, they were dead right, but it was for my son. So, <laughs> And I was very grateful, and I'd forgotten about that. My favorite one with tracking data was there was a study a while ago looking at sleep patterns in adolescent boys and they tracked it by wrist acceleration, which I thought was the funniest thing I had seen for a long time. It was all, it was inferred what they did. But I think it goes back to who owns the data. I, I got a little while ago, I got from Google Maps. Have you had this where they send you the monthly update of where you've been? And I thought, I don't want everybody knowing that. And, and I know you've been like a foot of my house for a year. <laughs> I haven't been with it. That was someone else who was around the house. That wasn't me. But this is exactly what I mean. Do you want this data followed? And then I feel a duality in terms of mental health. On the one hand, I've seen editorials argue very persuasively, why should individuals who've had mental health problems not be entitled to access to the same support and technology everyone else is? And at the same time, if we think about this as working with, with people who had psychoses, who at times might be at more vulnerable points in their life, might have specific concerns about about being observed or looked at by other people. And like, I'm not happy with my with my Google timeline data about tracking everywhere I've gone to. So like, I, I think it brings up sensitivities. Mm -hmm. But it does bring it back to me that the, the, the idea underneath that that we uh, you can't be paternalistic and say so therefore people you, you can't use this in mental health i think we have to be be bigger and braver than that i guess the only other thing i'd say is that it's it, it's important that all of the the information that's being collected is a proxy for something else and they kind of point that out in the paper that if you if you leave your phone or if you give your phone to your child and they are wandering off somewhere different then then clearly you know, you hanging around a nursery, for example, for hours on end, you know, may raise all a kind of anomaly detection uh, issues. So I kind of think there also needs to be kind of an approach which takes that into account as well within the algorithms that you're using, that there's a diversity or plurality of information 
and how you tri triangulate that seems to be the trick. There's a comment from Sophia in the, the comment box too, agreeing with that, just talking about it's an indicator. It needs to, needs to be contextualised and involved in decision-making. And I think that's probably a key part for me in mental health too, about involving people in decisions. I suppose that the fearful scenario is that people are then getting alerts saying you must come in and do A and B, and it could be quite aversive for people. And also, if you know you're being followed and monitored, I mean, again, we can think of positive examples. Maybe if you're doing, what's that thing where you do your, your steps every day, you might feel positive about that. But if you know everything you do is being sent up, it'll, it'll alter behaviour too. Generally, that feels generally positive with caveats from people. I think that's something that hasn't been widely studied is the idea of passive and active sensing being um, two sides of the same coin. So, you know, I, I am fiercely defensive about my online security and my online presence and, and all, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm offended when Google tells me what I was doing this time last year. Um, I, I don't want them knowing where I, you know, what I, where I walk or where I do. I, I'm not interested in that, but probably for, you know, and those are, I have my reasons for that. But I think here's the, I think what the use case that has not been explored is, is if you provide someone with a tool that contains opt-in, that is, would you mind or would you be comfortable telling us about how you're feeling? That feels to me collaborative and a partnership, and you can easily negotiate that. Um, in fact, if you think about it, that's just a, that's a digital tool analog for what clinicians and teams already do. It's just like, yeah. how much would you like us to be involved in helping you on a weekly, bi-weekly, daily basis? So that I find you know, uncontroversial. I think the flip side to that is the passive sensing, which is where you say to someone, so given that you want you know, to collaborate on working together to help with a particular problem um, and you're consenting and you're prepared to give us that data, for example, by giving us mood reports each day or reports on your sleep. Yeah. The flip side of that is that you can then say, you know, would, would you permit us to collect passive data? Because we think there might be some clues in that that are almost hidden from your you know, experience of telling us things each day. So that passive active thing, I think, needs an opt-in study. It needs some really robust qualitative work that really does involve people in the design of these instruments from the outset. And I, I'm not clear that that work's been done, but it's not my field. So I don't really feel qualified to say it. But, you know, there's, there's, there's an opportunity there. I just, I, th I think the promise, I, I think analogizing smartphones to digital phenotypes is a mistake. And I think that's probably reflects the, the immaturity of the technology and the, and, and the theorizing around nosology and phenotyping. But in addition to that, you know, way before we consider anything else, there's going to need to be some work about the acceptability of passive versus active sensing and whether or not people are even prepared to reveal that information. Now, to give you an idea, I've got an app on my phone that links to my car and there's no way I'm having that telling, it, telling me where I'm going or what I've been doing. I'm just not happy with it. So I can easily easily see that that feature I'm not going to give permission for but the feature that lets me book a service or something that's kind of cool I'll have that you know I'll let you know when I need you know my carburetor servicing or whatever particular thing in the car needs working on so I can see people will consent to some things and we'll see it as positive and useful but I can also see that the, the passive sensitive passive sensing is probably more controversial I would have thought I think there's also a, a huge gaping hole if we don't have some really nuanced science communication around it, um, because as you can see, you can take something as seemingly neutral as a vaccine in a pandemic, 
And all of a sudden, you know, people are worried about Bill Gates and there's some stuff that people aren't super clear about. And I feel like actually, so we've got the, yes, we all accept the facts as they are and do we opt in or do we opt out? But we have to, to wrestle with how do we get everyone to the same set of facts? And, you know, it, it's not as clear cut as perhaps we thought it was. Well, we'll ask Bill Gates for an answer from next month. Well, there are two papers for this month. Thank you for joining us and we hope to see you again in a month's time. Bye. Bye.